So uh, I'm obviously not much of a sportsman, um, but that's actually not because I'm not coordinated. I'm, I'm actually not bad when it comes to hand-eye coordination. So like if you were to, you know, throw a pass to me, I could probably catch it. Moreover, if I threw a pass to you, uh, my spiral would be better than yours because I have a very nice spiral. <laughs> my dad and I, we used to throw the ball back and forth when I was a kid and we would rate it. Right, so like you know, like a really like the perfect spiral would be a ten, right? Um, and then anything less than that, if it wobbled, you know, you're in the sevens at best. I mean, if it's off target, you're at the fours. Uh, we used to do that, and and since uh, I have a, some decent, I'm not great, but a decent hand-eye coordination. My dad always imagined that I might um, one day become a professional, you know, sports player, and and then make millions of dollars and fund his retirement. Um, that didn't happen. But really, the reason that I am just not a big fan of sports in general is because I am always stressed out uh, by teams. I'm stressed out by the fact that I might let uh, the team down. Um, I worry, like, I, I don't like the idea that, like, someone's looking at me and they're like, Tom, make a play. So what if I don't? What if I messed it up? Moreover, I don't want to depend on them because I know they're terrible. And I don't want to have to sit there and have, you know, because I get, I'm mostly a non-competitive person, but if things get close and they get heated, I get riled up. I get mad. And I don't like feeling that out of control, like, Aah! and so the, and so I just, I, that's why I surf. That's why that's my, my thing, surfing, because no, it's, I'm not depending on anyone. No one's depending on me. It's just me in the water, me and Jesus, me and God. I mean, seriously, that's one of the best things about, about surfing is that you just, you get out there and you're like, hey, it's just you and the Lord and that's it. I think uh, today we've been in a series called Failing Forward, and we've been following the life of Moses. Moses, uh, he's not a great guy, but he keeps at it. And we've seen several, uh, three weeks now, of him like just stumbling and failing. Uh, And and every time he, he fails, yes, but he fails forward. He fails in such a way that God can pick him up and move him to a better place. And today we're gonna see a little bit of uh, Moses's uh, hatred of teams and where that gets him. So uh, let's read the text together. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some men for us and go fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the shepherd's rod of God or, the, or God's staff in my hands. So Joshua did as Moses told him. He fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur, if you would like to pronounce that the Hebrew way, it helps to cough. Or, uh, went up, <laughs> lost my spot. Uh, they went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel would start winning the battle. Whenever Lo- Moses lowered his hand, Amalek would start winning. But Moses' hands grew tired, so they took a stone and put it under Moses so he could sit down on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on each side of him, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. Just uh, to start there, I mean, you, you have, we've, got, we've got to catch up here, right? So we've got, we've got to catch up with Moses because this is an interesting uh, battle strategy. This is an interesting tactic, 
right? So the, the, the Amalekites are coming and they're attacking uh, Israel. And, uh, and it makes sense for Moses to be like, hey, Joshua, you seem like you can kill people really well. Why don't you take some guys uh, who are presumably good at killing as well and you go fight them? That makes sense. That's a good way to win a war, by fighting. But then uh, jo- uh, Moses kind of ad- makes an addendum. He says, here's what I'm going to do to help you out. I'm going to go up on top of the hill with this staff that I've got and, and, and I'm going to hold it up. What a hero. Thanks, man. Well, why, does, why, is that Moses, why does Moses think that that's going to be a, 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 a good thing? Why, how is that helpful? Uh, well, we've got we to back up. If you remember at the very beginning of our stories with Moses, the, the very first thing Moses did is he, he took everything in his own hands. He wanted to save the, the Israelites, wanted to release them from slavery. So he goes and he, like, he, he murders one of their slavers. Right, uh, this is that. That's this picture where he he like you know beats him up or whatever, and uh, he just takes his matters in his own hands, kills a guy. Uh, the the other slaves are watching, and so the next day he's like, hey, and they're actually fighting with each other. He's like, guys, stop fighting. Like, what are you gonna do? Kill us like you killed that guy? He's like, oh no. He runs. He's wanted for murder. He runs away. Taking everything into his own hands was a terrible choice. Uh, that was, he was self-reliant, and we saw that that was a bad deal for Moses, and he had to run away, and he had to, like, humble himself and stop depending on himself for victory. Well, what he uh, ended up doing, and we saw this uh, last week, is he ended up starting to depend on God for victory. And we skipped this, because it's, like, one of Moses' great moments, but we have a picture of Charlton Heston as Moses, where he parts the Red Sea, if you remember this, for the Israelites to run away from the Egyptians, Moses gets up and God says, take this staff I gave you, right? And I want you to hold it up. And when you do this, when you make this motion, uh, the water's going to part. Now, it's not as though the staff is magic, okay? There's no magic staffs. This is not like, uh, he's not a magician. He's not, uh, he's not, there's nothing about the staff that's, that's powerful. What's powerful, the staff represents Moses' dependence on God to do what God says God's going to do, right? So he gets out there, and Charlton Heston, good-looking man, whoa, like that, does like this. All, all of this, all of this is a symbol of his dependence on God. God's with us. I believe it. God says we're going to have victory. So when I do this, something awesome is going to happen. And sure enough, the waters part. The Israelites run through. At a certain point, I, I'm not sure how it ends up happening. Maybe he drops the thing or whatever. But what the, the bottom line is the Egyptians are following them. The waters crash in on them. Uh, God, you know, takes care of business. And so the people of Israel now recognize, and Moses recognizes, that when he's demonstrating his dependence on God, he uses his staff. And there's... Um, the, the, the story just previous to the one that we're, we're doing right now, Moses actually uses his staff. He taps a rock, and, and, and water comes out of the rocks. Again, not a magic staff. It's not like it's just wood. Like It's not going to break rocks. But, but presumably, Moses is depending on God, and as a result, God does something, uh, and, and, and the staff is, is representative of that. That's the first thing in your note sheets. Moses raising the rod shows that he has moved from me-dependence to me-God dependence. Okay? This is not Moses saying, hey, Joshua, I'm awesome, but I have a magic wand, and I'm going to win the battle for us. That's not what's going on. What Moses is doing, and Joshua understands this, is he's saying, hey, Joshua, I'm going to do what we do. I'm going to depend on God, and God's going to give us this amazing victory. Joshua's like, ah, that's awesome. Thank you. Let's go back to the text. 
notice a few things. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel starts winning the battle. Whenever Moses lowers his hand, Amalek starts winning. And it says Moses' hands grew tired. Literally in the Hebrew, it's uh, Moses, uh, Moses' hands grew heavy, or they, they got heavy. And this is like a, I mean, this makes sense. If you, have you ever done the games where, like, to demonstrate your strength, where you hold out your hand, you put something in it and see who can hold it the longest, right, without dropping? Have you seen that? Um, it, it's pretty amazing how quickly the arm drains strength when, you're, when it's outstretched. This is not, again, this is not magic, okay? This is not magic. This is a symbol this is a symbol of Moses' dependence on God. And I'm going to, I'll prove this to you, by the way. This is not just me saying stuff. We'll, we'll talk, we'll, we'll show you later exactly how it is that we know this is symbolic. So it's not as though what, what's happening here is just because Moses is getting tired, like Israel starts losing. What's actually going on is that we're seeing kind of behind the scenes. Moses' dependence on God is heavy. Moses takes it upon himself, right, to, to do all the trusting in God that's necessary. He believes that it's his dependence on God that is going to be the deciding factor in Israel winning or losing. And this is symbolized by him getting up there and holding out the staff. and uh, 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 uh. He's got it all on his shoulders, and those shoulders start to burn, both physically and spiritually, Where is it? Is it the police? Is it time? Where's the police? Oh. Gordon Sumner. Gordon Matthew Thomas Sumner, better known as Sting. Look at that man. Do you know why he's called Sting, anybody? I'm sorry? The hair, close. Yeah, well, yeah, kind of. So it turns out that uh, Sting uh, was a fan of the worst kind of music ever invented by human beings, jazz. And uh, so as a young man, he would uh, spend time in jazz clubs, and it's, his name was Gordon, and the leader of the jazz uh, band was also Gordon, and so it was confusing. And so the leader of the jazz band called, started calling him Sting because he looks like a wasp. Yeah, that's why. He looks like a wasp. And it's true. If you're going to have like a movie about a wasp and you wanted someone to play that wasp, it would be Sting. He does. He looks like a, like a bee. Uh, Sting was the front man of the police uh, probably the biggest band in the world uh, at the time of their of their breakup. In 1983, they released Synchronicity, which has their all-time greatest hit, uh, Every Breath You Take, the world's creepiest song. Right? <laughs> Whatever. It's like, oh, this is so beautiful. Wait, he's, he's a stalker. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. Synchronicity, uh, the police are literally the biggest band in the world. They're number one on the UK Billboard 200, number one on the uh, US Billboard 200. They're selling albums like hotcakes. They've had huge, massive hits. Why? 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 Uh, because there's three of them, and they all come from different styles of music. Sting, like we noted, uh, comes from jazz, which is normally horrible. But when combined with reggae and punk... Uh, actually can create some really cool sounds. And so there's these disparate influences that the three members brought, and for some reason they were all such musical geniuses that they were able to get together, and what they created was something fantastic and new and fresh and different. And they, and they did it in a way that was really fun to listen to. They had hooks. You know, like the, what's the, every breath he takes is magic. And then there's that song that's like, do, 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 da, do, 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 where they don't even bother with words because the melody's so good. So here they are, the biggest band in the world, 
1983, they released Synchronicity. By the end of 1984, they've broken up never... Well, I guess they eventually got back because they found something they had in common. Your money. Uh, 30, 30 years later. <laughs> um, but why? Why'd they break up? Because well, Sting's awesome. He doesn't need those other guys. Sting's like, I'm the best. You guys are terrible. When they were recording Synchronicity, apparently the other two guys in the band, whose name nobody knows, uh, they came up with eight songs. And Sting came in. He's like, these are all garbage. And he just tossed them aside. And they were like, are you kidding me? But they put up with it because he's Sting. Finally, Sting's like, I've had enough of you failures. I'm going to go out and do my own thing. At which point he produced precisely nothing of value for the rest of his career. And I don't care if you like solo Sting albums, you're wrong. They're, they're awful. They're boring. Even Fields of Gold is not that great. It's like he's the laziest musician ever after he quits the, the police because the police, the, the band, the threesome, had this spark. And, and, and Sting was like, in a normal band, in a functioning band like the Rolling Stones, everyone depends on each other. Well, Sting depended on nobody. Sting depended on Sting. Moses is a little bit like Sting. Let's look at the text again. Notice the pronouns here. He's like, hey, Joshua, I know it seems like you're doing something important by like actually fighting the battle, but hey, I'll stand on top of the hill with the shepherd rod in my hand. It goes on. Moses held up his hand. He lowered his hand Moses' hands grew tired. Like I said, this isn't just a physical thing. This is a spiritual thing. Um, this isn't just uh, an example. This isn't just a battle. It's not like, you know, Amalek's coming and Moses is like, hey, everybody, I can do this magic thing. No, what Moses is thinking and believing is that it's his dependence on God that's going to carry the day. But it turns out that his dependence on God is exhausting. And he doesn't have enough God dependence to go around, as it were. So that's the next thing in your note sheets. Moses begins to fail because personal God dependence isn't enough. Personal God dependence isn't enough. And the story's pretty simple, right? We go back to the text. Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Uh, It's interesting. At no point in the text does Moses ever talk to or address Aaron and Hur. Have you noticed this? It doesn't say Moses is going up the hill. He's like, hey, Aaron and Hur, can you come with me? There's a reason for that. It's because Aaron and Hur, Hur uh, just shows up here. We haven't met him yet in the story. We hear more about him later, and I might mention that a bit. But um, basically, we do know about Aaron. And Aaron has zero authority. He's, like, he's, all he li- he's literally Moses' mouthpiece. Uh, Moses doesn't like talking in front of people, and he's like, God, I don't want to do this. And God's finally like, look, you're doing it. And since I know you hate public speaking, I'm going to give you Aaron. So you tell Aaron, you whisper in his ear what I say, Aaron's going to broadcast it to the people. That way you can... So, but Aaron has no authority on his own. He's basically an Aaron boy. He is, he's, he's basically the, the megaphone or the microphone for Moses. He has no power. He, no one cares about Aaron. He, Aaron's, he's a second-class citizen. And presumably, Hur is probably the same way. Uh, and, and as a result, it's not as though um, it's the, th- the three of them going around. It's, it's Sting, Moses, and then the two other guys in the band who just follow him wherever he goes. And they just do what he says. 
They're not independent operators. They're not writing the music. They're just following because Moses is doing what Moses does. And so when it, you might even think that like probably the Hebrew word order, Moses, uh, Aaron, and Hur, might indicate that Moses just takes off to the top of the mountain. And then the other two guys are like, oh, we got to follow him. He's going to get in trouble again. Okay. So they follow him waiting for orders, something like that. The text goes on. And uh, notice this again. So Moses' hands are tired, right? He's getting exhausted. Uh, he starts dropping the, the staff, right? And then he's like, oh, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. I'm depending on the Lord. It's just me and God. I, uh, uh, uh. Notice what it says. It says, they, Aaron and Hur, took a stone and put it under Moses. So Moses is doing what Moses does. These two guys, they just, they're like, wow, this is going terribly. And so without any request from Moses. Moses staying, he's got it all on his own. They, they, they just realize they need to do something. And so they put a stone under it, and, and so Moses sits down. That helps, right? And then you'd assume that Moses would be like, great call, guys. You think maybe, maybe you could hold up my arms as well? No, Moses doesn't say a thing. He's like, oh, fine, I guess. And then they come up and they support his arms, and he's like... At no point is Moses initiating any help. Because Moses is all about Moses and God. It's a tradition here. Once every probably four months, we have to talk about the Lord of the Rings. It's a, it's a, it's a be- beautiful thing. A deeply Christian. One of the best parts of Lord of the Rings, uh, especially the first movie, I think it's the first movie, they all kind of blend, bleed together at, at a certain point, but... It's that scene where uh, Frodo, Frodo's the hobbit who's been given the, the ring, and Gandalf says, you've got to go destroy this ring, you have this mission. And uh, Sam, his buddy, is like listening, and so uh, Gandalf's like, well, I don't want to kill you, but I can't let you away because you might t- tell the secret. So here's what, you're going to follow Frodo, you're going to just follow him, right? And, but Frodo's the one with the mission, and Frodo at some point realizes that the, the ring's going to corrupt everybody, right? And so he's like, I've got to take care of this on my own, I've got to run. And so he, he, there's a big battle going on, and so he secrets a, 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 like a canoe, and he, starts, he jumps in the canoe, and he's, way, and he's going across, and he's going to go dump the ring in Mount Dune by himself. And then he looks back, and he sees Sam following him. And he's like, Sam, get, get back, man. This is my job. I don't want you to get hurt. I got this. Gandalf gave me the mission, Okay. I need to go to take care of this ring. You stay where you are. Help the others. If you don't, bad things are going to happen. And Sam, God bless him, he just keeps going. And it's a beautiful scene in the movie where he, uh, he, he gets to the point where he can't, he can't uh, uh, touch the bottom and he starts to sink. Why? Because he can't swim. And he says, Mr. Frodo, I can't swim. And so Frodo has like a choice. He can either go on and watch his friend drown or he can come back and like pull him into the boat. And he does. He goes back. He, he pulls him into the boat and, he, and he's like, this is a terrible idea. I'm the one who's supposed to do this. It's my my job, but man, Sam, I'm so glad you're here. Similarly, probably something like this is going on with Moses, right? He's like, he's sitting there, his arms are getting tired. When, he, when he, they finally sit him down and hold up his, his arms, he's probably like, wow, Aaron and Hur, I'm really glad you're here. What Frodo doesn't know is that um, Sam the sort of almost happenstance way that Sam gets connected to this mission is going to pay off in huge, huge ways. There's a part where uh, Frodo gets uh, stung by a, a spider and, uh, and, and Sam has to take care of him. There's a part where uh, Frodo loses the ring and Sam has to carry it. And then finally, at the very end of the mission, right, at the end of the last movie, um, by the way, if you've seen the Hobbit trilogy, that's a huge waste of time. Don't do that. 
Peter Jackson, he had this amazing moment where he crushed it, and then he pulled a sting, and he thought he didn't need editors, and, and, and man, he really met, I'm, I'm sorry. Anyway, at the end of the third, uh, of the, the real trilogy, at the end of The Lord of the Rings, there's this moment where Frodo is so tired and so beat up, he can't get to the top of Mount Doom. And in that, that moment, it's like, you, I, I'm not a crier usually in movies, but there are a few points in The Lord of the Rings where I get a little choked up, and this is one of those moments where Sam picks up Frodo and carries him. Now, the analogy is a, a little bit off because, um, you know, it's people that are depending on each other rather than God. But do you notice in this text, and this is the next thing in your note sheets, that the only reason Moses doesn't fail is because he's surrounded by his friends? And, you know, it's a, it's a largely male audience today because the ladies are gone, and, and that's okay. This can be a little dude-centric. Um, as guys and as men, and maybe it's just me, it's not, but we, we tend to have the sense that, like, uh, real men um, are, we do it solo, right? Um, we can take care of business. We've got what we need. And uh, what's really cool about this story is that Moses doesn't recognize he's in over his head. But he does have a practice of being surrounded by people that care about him, that love him. Trustworthy people. That's kind of how he lives his life. Wherever he goes, Aaron and Hur are there. And as a result, when he starts to fall apart, they're there to see it. They're there to recognize it. They're there to be like, man, we got to jump in here. He's falling apart. Similarly, you know, Frodo, Frodo thinks he's doing what he's doing. He is really, really lucky. Or in, you know, Tolkien's idea, he, he's blessed. There's providence that somehow Sam is with him because when things go bad, Frodo doesn't see it happening, but because Sam is there, someone's there to pick him up and take care of him. And I wonder, you know, I wonder the extent to which we, especially guys, are living in a way where if we started to lose it and we started to fall apart, would anybody know Or would it just kind of happen in a vacuum? And then someone would be like, hey, where's Tom? I haven't seen him in a while. So I, going back to the text, this is very, very cool. So, um, so after this story, right? After, after the story about beating the Amalekites, um, immediately in the next chapter, something really interesting happens. Uh, Moses' father-in-law shows up. He, he travels over, and he comes, and, he, and, he, and he's observing the way that Moses leads the Israelites. It's very interesting. 
It's, just, it's so random, and all, it's like the, this very strange juxtaposition. First, Moses is fighting, and his arms are tired, uh, and then suddenly uh, Jethro, his father-in-law, shows up and is checking things out, the way that Moses runs the show. And uh, I'm going to read this text, and I want you to just notice the, the dramatic parallels between how Moses is leading Israel and how he's fighting wars against, the, against Amalek, Okay. When Moses' father-in-law saw uh, all that he was doing for the people, he said, What's this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit all alone while the people are standing around you from morning to night? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. They need to know I'm the one. I'm the guy. When a conflict arises, they, need to, they come to me and I judge between them. I teach them God's regulations and instructions. I'm so important because I've got this incredibly dependent relationship on God. All these people need me. Can't you see that? Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing isn't good. You will end up totally wearing yourself out. The Hebrew there is navot tevot. It's like a... You will droop, you will sag. In Hebrew, the way that um, things get really intensified is by using the same word or same root over and over in like a kind of a, it's almost like poetry. But basically, it's like, you're, you're going to be absolutely exhausted. And not just you, the people too, right? All the people with you are going to be exhausted. You can't do it alone. This work's too difficult for you. But you should also look among the people for capable persons who fear God. Well, this thing, they're like, fear God. Somebody who understands the importance of God dependence. Have I seen anyone like that in like the last day? Aaron and Hur? No. We find out later in Exodus 24 that he uh, entrusts Aaron and Hur with uh, like the second in command role so that when he's gone, they're going to take over. Um, but anyway. They should be trustworthy and not corrupt. Set these persons over the people as officers of groups of thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. Let them sit as, ju- as judges for the people at all times. They should bring the major disputes, but they should decide the minor cases themselves. This is going to be easier for you, and they will share your load. If you do this and God directs you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people will be able to go back to their homes much happier. Moses listened to his father-in-law's suggestions and did everything that he had said. Do you see that Moses uh, understands that he's got to be dependent on God, and he thinks that's enough. If he does God dependence, then people are going to come to him, and he'll be able to sort out all their problems and teach them all the things that they need to know. He's got it under control, right? Oh, wait, no. This is going to destroy you, Moses. You're going to fall apart. Moses thinks that if he just holds the staff up, his dependence on God's enough. But no, Moses, it's not your God dependence that's going to be enough. What do you have next? Oh. You know I hate Boston. I hate the city. I hate the people. Certainly hate the sports teams. Um, I'm just kidding, of course. I think Boston's amazing. Uh, but you've got to have an enemy you got to have somebody that you can bag on. And if there's one city in this, wow, there's a lot of cities I dislike. But Boston's the worst. It's ugly. And the people are cruel and mean. That doesn't mean I don't respect Boston. In the 80s, uh, the Boston Celtics won three championships. I think at least two of them against the Los Angeles Lakers. Forever earning our hatred and disgust. But also our grudging respect. 
I really uh, disliked Boston for a long time. I recognized the talent that's uh, right there. That's the big three of Boston. It's uh, what, uh, Larry Bird, Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale, uh, the greatest front court of all time in NBA history or whatever. Um, I didn't really get why they were so good as a kid. I just knew that they beat the team that I liked, and so I hated them. However, you also know that I'm a huge fan of the Golden State Warriors, the dubs, and in particular Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, but I am not a bandwagon fan. I do that because uh, I went to the same college as Steph and the same high school as Clay. I was a fan before you were. I'm better than you. And my fandom is real. Just saying. However, when I was, you know, just enamored with the Steph, Clay, Draymond, and then eventually Kevin Durant uh, Warriors, what I found was what really attracted me to the team was not just that I loved the players, but I do. What really attracted me to the team was the way they played the game, right? Uh, Steph is the greatest three-shooter of all time. Clay is probably the greatest spot-up shooter of all time. Draymond's one of the great defenders and horrible humans of all time. Then, of course, Kevin Durant, one of the greatest players of his generation. But the way they play the game is very different than other big three, big four teams. Big three, big four teams typically go, oh, it's LeBron. It's LeBron's turn with the ball. LeBron comes down the court, shoots the basket, gets it. Oh, now it's Dwayne Wade's turn. He dribbles down the court. He shoots it. He gets it. Oh, now it's Chris Bosh's turn. Let's wait. Pass to him. Oh, he gets it. It's a very, um, it's a very solo, ISO kind of just here's some great guys doing great things. Even, unfortunately, during the three-peat era, Kobe and Shaq did the same thing. It wasn't like Kobe and Shaq were really playing together. They just happened to be on the court at the same time. And as a result, they, because they were both so individually amazing, they won. Well, the Golden State Warriors built their offense on the 80s Celtics. The 80s Celtics were known for constant passing of the basketball. They, they, uh, they averaged more passes and more assists than any other team in the league the entire time they, they, they had their dynastic run. The idea was is that everyone was depending on everyone else. No one was the guy, even if Larry Bird was probably the best of them all, even if he was the most talented. He had his role, everyone else had their roles. And everybody was understanding that if they depended and trusted each other, they would be greater as a whole than they were as individual players. And as such, even if you think, as I do, that the Lakers were probably a more talented team at the time, they ended up losing. Because the way Boston played the game was beautiful. It depended on trust. It depended on interdependence. Not one guy being the best. And, and guys taking their turns. You'll notice that what Jethro is counseling Moses is, hey, it's not about you being the best. It's about you all spreading out the, the dependence on God. It's not just your dependence on God, Moses, is going to win the day. The whole of Israel has to depend on God. And really, if you think that you're teaching them stuff, what you ought to be teaching all of Israel is they all have to be God-dependent, not just you. They can't just look to your dependence to satisfy everyone's dependence. We all have to depend on God together. And if you do that, not only will you not burn out and not be exhausted, but the whole congregation is going to be happier. And moreover, they're going to be greater. They're going to be the people I've called them to be. And that's the next thing in your note sheets. Good churches become great when they go from me, God-dependent, to we, God-dependent. This is weird for us um, because we tend to think of spirituality as something that's about me and God, right? Am I praying enough? Even think about the worship songs we sing. 
Uh, one of the things I love about Doug is he's very conscious of this. We've talked about this in the past. And he, you know, there is an element, there's a space for worship songs. We're all saying, God, you have enough for me. Um, today, I think we had, um, what was it, uh, I Will. Something like that. We had an I song this morning. But Doug also dumps in a lot of we songs. God, we need you. We're dependent on you. Modern worship has a hard time with this because we're a very individualistic country, nation, people. We're all about, am, am I right with God? Am I doing well with God? Am I, am I dependent on God? And that, that, that's great. That's awesome. That's a first step. That's a good thing. Don't want to knock it at all. But it's only going to be so great. It's only going to be so good until your arms get tired, until the people are too much and you fall apart. You, it, it's not just enough for you to be God-dependent. You have to be surrounded by people who are God-dependent. And when that happens, that's when God's movement becomes outrageous. That's when God does things that are fantastic and wild. When we're all in it together, when we're all saying, we're just going to let Tom be holy for all of us. That's a really bad plan. If you go with that plan, this whole thing is going to go up in flames. I guarantee you. Or you might be like, well, I got this. If that's how you operate, Things are going to go badly for you. You're going to get tired. Instead, if you're surrounded by trustworthy friends and you all are dependent on God, then you might get there. You might get to the top of the mountain and toss the ring in. So a little gut check and then we'll, and then we'll, we'll call it. From me to we, number one question, how much of my spirituality involves others? This is weird because uh, for a lot of us, especially men, men don't tend to want to like get together and sort of hold hands and pray together. That's kind of weird for, for dudes especially. Uh, if there's any praying going on, it's usually something we do solo uh, because, you know, it's like we don't, it's, it's awkward, right? People talking to an invisible person in the sky, that's strange. I don't like that. Um, I get you. I understand that. I get you. I'm with you. But... If you're practicing spirituality in a group, in a community, when you start to fall apart, chances are they're going to check it, and they're going to see it, and they're going to grab you and and hold you up before things get catastrophic. Number two, how much am I considering how God is moving in the community rather than in my life or the life of my family? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be wanting God to move in your life and the life of your family. You should. But you should also be attentive to what God's doing here. And if you're not, then maybe what you're doing is you're really using church as kind of like a, a service. What can this church do for me and my family? Can this church make sure that you know my kids grow up and learn morals? Can this church move me spiritually? Is that what church is for? Some churches are. This one's not. Number three, how comfortable am I discussing faith with other people? Uh, Do you share openly about who you are and what God is doing? Or is that something that's really uncomfortable, especially for guys? Easy to talk about, you know, football and the police and, 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 and basketball. Not so easy to talk about faith. Last but not least, when I serve God, Am I doing so as part of a team or as a solo act?
I would say uh, over the last year, year and a half, one of, the, one of the best things that's happened in my life, personally, was um, starting to do uh, sermons and sermon writing and sermon prep with my friend from seminary, Mike. Um, not only do I think that there's better quality because he notices things I don't and vice versa, but also I think that uh, our service became something that was just like we just were cloistered off doing our own thing, and it became something that was mutual. And we recognized that, dude, it's not about who's got the best church and who has the best sermons. and It's really about how can we, as brothers in Christ, minister to people and, and do that together. And that changed the way um, I, I started thinking about what we do on Sundays. And I'm wondering how many people here are like, have your, your thing that you're doing, and it's like, oh yeah, it's me and God, I'm serving God, and God's super pleased with what I'm doing. Are you bringing people into that? Is that something that's like mutual? Because if it's not, it might be headed for a big crash. Let's pray. Gracious God, I just ask um, that this place be a a we-dependent place. That every one of us will share in our dependence on you. That nobody here will try to lift the staff by themselves. That nobody here will try to to lead the people by themselves. But instead, that in every one of our ministries and every one of our our endeavors, that that we'll be surrounded by people who know us deeply, who care about us, um, who seek our good, who want to see us uh, transformed and, and moving forward in faith and life, and that we can share in that and depend on each other as we're all depending on you. I pray that you raise up um, powerful, deep relationships here that people will know each other um, in, in real ways, and they'll see the way that, that everyone is leaning on you and expecting you to do amazing things. May nobody here be left behind. May nobody here go it alone. May we all find our hope in we God dependence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.